0: The Centre for Energy Ethics is an opportunity for energy researchers, whatever discipline, to come together.
1: Hello, I'm your host James and welcome to All About Energy, the brand new podcast from the Centre for Energy Ethics at the University of St Andrews. Every episode we get together with an expert from the centre and discuss some of the energy news from around the world, before going into an interview with a special guest from the world of energy. It is my pleasure this week to introduce my co-host for the episode, PhD student in social anthropology with her work on energy elites and how individual leaders within the energy industry shape our collective energy futures, Anna Router. Anna, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me and thanks for that warm welcome. I'm really excited to be talking to you today.
1: No, thanks for being our first uh, co-host.
2: I feel honored.
1: Right. So, Anna, are you ready to get into some news?
2: Yes, I'm ready. I
1: think I'll go first this time. And for my news item, we're going to talk about a classic winter treat, which may be doing you more harm than good. So picture (laughs) this, a cozy winter scene, everyone cuddled up in the living room, snow outside, wood fire roaring. Sounds great, right?
2: Sounds beautiful, amazing, romantic.
1: Well, maybe not. As it turns out, Domestic wood burning has become the single biggest source of small particle air pollution in the UK. The data behind this comes from a study by the UK government and has been highlighted in a Guardian article written by Damien Carrington. Particle pollution refers to tiny, that's smaller than 10 micrometers in diameter, particles in either solid or liquid form that are suspended in the air. Now, these particles are so small that they're invisible to the naked eye, but they can do a lot of damage. When inhaled, particulates, as they are known, can get into the bloodstream and travel around the body, causing direct damage to internal organs. And for this reason, the World Health Organization has labeled particulates the single most harmful type of air pollution. This study by the UK government has revealed that domestic wood burning is responsible for 38% of the total small particulate pollution. That's particularly particulates under 2.5 micrometers in diameter, so small. And this figure is made all the more resounding by the fact that this 38% comes from only 8% of the population who burn wood in their homes.
2: That's interesting. 8%, so only 8% burn wood fires, but it, they make up such a huge chunk of that particulate pollution
1: it gets more remarkable two-thirds of those are using wood-fired stoves and one-third an open fireplace but additionally according to a separate study done by canter 46 percent of those who are using wood are doing so for aesthetic reasons or a sense of tradition this mm. is only eight percent so that's eight percent of that eight percent do so out of necessity right which means a whole heap of this pollution is coming from people who are burning wood because it feels like it's the right thing to do. It appeals to our sense of tradition. Like we said up at the beginning, that romantic scene of sitting down by the fireplace. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I wonder if during COVID times where people are at home more often, if that figure is increasing in 2020 and maybe into 2021, because, you know, rather than going out, more people are staying in and they want to have a cozy night at home. So this would contribute to their, to their feelings and then contribute to this particulate
1: pollution. Well, potentially because this data, that the study is based on is from 2019. Mm-hmm. So we don't have the data for last year yet, but who knows how, uh, how COVID could have affected that. So does all this mean the tradition of winter fires or using wood fire stoves should come to an end? Well, according to some organizations, yes. Representatives from Asthma UK and the British Lung Foundation have called for a complete stop to these practices, except when there is no valid alternative. However, there are some more moderate approaches that can be used in order to reduce the amount of particulate pollution which wood fires give off. And for the most part, this comes down to some basic chemistry. Particulates are given off from a fire as a result of incomplete combustion, where there is insufficient energy or oxygen in the system to turn all the carbon from the wood into carbon dioxide. Usually in these discussions about pollution, carbon dioxide is bad, but in this case, carbon dioxide is good, or at least better than the alternative. With wood, incomplete combustion happens most commonly when it's damp. Energy from the fire gets used to drive off any water present, which results in a decrease in the efficiency of the combustion of the wood. And after all, most of us know that wet wood equals a smoky fire. And the UK government are actually taking steps towards reducing the amount of wet wood on the market, with a ban in the sale of such wood coming into effect on May 1st. However, it should be noted it's also important to store your fuel correctly in order to avoid absorbing more moisture than is necessary.
2: Mm, interesting. Interesting. That, and difficult sometimes, because I think a lot of people tend to store their wood out outdoors, which would then absorb a lot of moisture, especially in the UK with, with all that rain, right? <laughs> I mean,
1: exactly, exactly.
2: Yeah, sorry. Something that I'm wondering about, and I I'm, i haven't quite understood this yet from, from what you've just said, um, those particulates are... Uh, the the chemistry of their makeup are they carbon dioxide particulates or are they different and because you're saying that carbon dioxide in this case would actually be a good thing
1: yeah so it's carbon it's it's unburnt carbon that comes off it's the same thing as the soot that lines Uh, the inside of a chimney except it's suspended in the air
2: yeah i find it really interesting um because i'm wondering what sort of filters they have in place in their in their heating systems or their stoves or or whatever they might be using their fireplaces because um, as you know I was doing my research in Norway my field work and there I know that they're quite strict on the kind of filter systems they have in place Um, all the all the stoves so if you have a fireplace that has this sort of stove system in it and then that has to have a filter that filters out a lot of these particulates I don't have exact figures on it but I know that you know during the time when I was in Norway a lot of people had to actually get new systems in place to comply to these rules these these filter rules yeah so I wonder what the UK has and if based on this study they might have to change some of the some of the measures to try and prevent getting these particulates into the air
1: well there's there's actually been a lot of work done in the UK to reduce the particulate pollution and in particular, the reduction in the use of coal in both industry and, and private use, and also the increase in efficiency of, uh, vehicle, in particular, diesel engines mm-hmm. and particulate pollution has been falling quite rapidly over the last two, three decades, but it's the reductions have started to, to level off. And that's directly as a result of this, uh, the wood burning practices. And you mentioned filters in, mm-hmm. In Norway, there's Mm. one interesting approach that's been used in my homeland, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They've decided that one of the ways that you can reduce particulate pollution is to get people to burn smarter. So it's not necessarily how much you're burning, but it's how you're burning it. And in particular, New Zealand are using educational pamphlets and courses to teach people optimal ways of constructing wood fires in order to (laughs) increase airflow and therefore increase the amount of total combustion that's going on because insufficient airflow or the overloading of fires can increase this particulate pollution by reducing the amount of oxygen available to those carbon molecules. So yeah, so it's an interesting way in which education and or learning a practical skill such as fire building and efficient fire building can actually help if we are to continue burning wood in this way for heat. So yeah, there are options, but I'm going to to avoid wood as much as I can.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's my news Mm -hmm. this episode. Anna, do you have something for us?
2: Right. Going from heated homes to freezing homes, as the wife of uh, Texan Senator Ted Cruz said, it made the news the last couple of days, uh, as you may know. Texas has been going through this extreme, unprecedented cold weather with sub-zero temperatures, significant power outages, food shortages, even drinking water is scarce. And amidst all of this craziness, uh, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz went to Mexico, um, and his wife said one of the reasons is because their home is freezing, which created this whole uproar in on social media and in the media. And uh, so my news piece is actually a a Guardian article written by Robert Reich. He is a former U.S. Secretary of Labor and a professor of public policy at the University of California at Berkeley. And he wrote a very critical article on oil elites. And, you know, since I'm looking at elites in my research, I thought this would be a great piece to, to have a look at. He says that the people who were benefiting the most or who are benefiting the most from this power crisis in texas are the oil elites texas is known to be a a state with a lot of oil tycoons it says in the article actually it says that texas has the third highest number of billionaires in america and most of them are billionaires because they're oil tycoons or oil elites robert reich in this guardian article makes the point that the winners of the energy crisis are oil elites. Um, This is partly also the case because as he describes in the article, they have used this opportunity, um, the sort of oil lobby has used this opportunity to criticize renewables for not being reliable enough to uh, provide electricity during this time, but then as other articles have reminded us, and there have been a lot of articles published on this, for example, Time magazine has written about it. Actually, wind power, for example, wind turbines are not the reason, the most significant reason for those power outages, but that actually frozen instruments at natural gas, coal, and even nuclear facilities have contributed more significantly to the power outages. But the, the sort of oil lobby and the oil elites have still used the power outages as a way to criticize renewable energy, and especially in light of the new Green Deal that is supposed to happen, said that, you know, it shouldn't happen because renewable energy isn't reliable, when actually the case seems to be that during such extreme weathers, all types of energy have issues. And I think this is, this is a really important point because in political discussions and in discussions in the media, it always seems like, you know, renewables are depicted as this sort of energy utopia, as this type of energy that has very little impact to no impact and to, on the environment or the climate. But really, when you think about it, all energy comes at a certain cost whether that's a financial or an environmental or a climate cost there's there will always be impact there's no at the moment we cannot live in an energy utopia there's no perfect solution that has zero impact and is totally climate friendly that is not to say that you know renewables shouldn't be supported and they shouldn't be built up but i think there has to be an awareness that yeah there isn't there isn't a perfect solution whether that is renewables or oil and gas. And actually, a lot of the people that I spoke to, industry folks that I spoke to, they said, well, considering that we don't have a perfect energy solution, we need to figure out a way to use what we have to move forward in the least carbon intensive ways.
1: It seems to me that the unreliability of a lot of the renewable sources of of energy was something that was probably more emblematic of the discourse a couple of decades ago than it is a reality now, but it's something that's stuck with in particular solar and wind because Mm. they're not necessarily reliable in the sense of of if it's cloudy or if it's night, you can't use solar energy. If there's no winds, you can't use wind energy. And then you have issues of storage as well on top of that. So they're not reliable on demand. Those criticisms, I, I think, need to start falling by the wayside. Because as we mm. increase battery technology, as we increase the uh, our ability to make uh, hydrogen, and of course, we've also got systems where you can use uh, hydro storage of energy as well.
2: The interesting case of what is happening in Texas at the moment is... That even though the oil lobby and these oil elites are apparently attempting to portray it as a failure of renewable energy, when you look at it more, more closely, it's generally a failure of, of energy. And, and it's, you know, people being puzzled by climate change actually being a reality. It's hitting places hard all over the world, including the US, and it shows that people aren't prepared for it. What I want to say is that it doesn't just affect renewables, it also affects natural gas and quite significantly so. So the whole point that they're trying to make, looking at renewables like, like it's the bad guy in this, is is obviously it's obviously not the case. And my earlier point about the you know, the fact that there is no energy utopia, this is a perfect example of why the way we have to approach electricity and energy, I think, has to be on multiple fronts. And there has to be an awareness that as weather extremes are getting, you know, will be accelerating and will be increasing in the, in, the, in the future, there have to be, solutions have to be found. You know, I think in politics still, it's very popular to speak about climate mitigation. And obviously it's less popular to speak about climate adaptation because that gives us sort of sense that we've already given up, right? When we're adapting to climate change, does that mean we're still trying to, to mitigate its effects? Yeah, of course. And I think in the industry, from what I can tell, especially in Europe, in Norway, people are, you know, the industry is working on thinking about how do we adapt our energy supplies and the way we produce energy to extreme weather that we will be confronted with in the future, even if we can manage to cut down on carbon. But obviously, I mean, the people that I was working with, they didn't advertise this very much because it isn't a popular thing to say that you're looking at adapting uh, in your energy production to to climate change, but it has to be done. And it has to be done in a way where it's okay to talk about it because as Texas shows, it's really important to start thinking about it. um, And it's unavoidable.
1: Well, yeah, climate change is not something that's going to happen. It's something that is happening around us.
2: And then the other interesting thing is, and I think going back to this article um, from Robert Reich in The Guardian, the one thing with climate change is that it affects everybody. But, of course, it affects people differently, depending on a lot of socioeconomic factors. So what I find interesting is that people like Ted Cruz, who flew for the weekend to Mexico because they wanted to escape the cold and go to the warmth, this was an experience for them, too. They noticed that this was an extreme occurrence and extreme weather occurrence. And even though they were better off, I hope, and maybe I'm being too naive and too idealist here, I hope that even with people in these kinds of positions who might be you know, against climate change or might be avid supporters of oil, they can start to see that climate change is real, that it's something that has to be dealt with in some way, and obviously not, ideally not by flying off to a country where there currently isn't a problem. But um, yeah, so this is sort of my takeaway, um, even though you know, I can totally understand the outrage of people um, where you know, people are, don't have enough water, they don't have enough food, some people are dying from the cold and then someone just flies away to another country. I would hope that the one positive takeaway is that maybe these people who are in these privileged positions also start thinking about it, also start thinking about how it affects them in their daily lives and how it will be in the future.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good takeaway. That's a good takeaway.
2: Actually, I was trying to tell my 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 students that in my lecture this week um, that you know we have to think critically about all types of energy, not over critically because that will prevent us from actually doing getting anything done. And I think that was one of the main criticisms that I encountered from the side of the industry when I was doing research they were saying you know there are all these activists activists all these people in social movements and they all they criticize us so much that if we would listen to all of that we couldn't do anything anymore so what I mean with critical look is that we have to look at energy not just as good and bad we have to see that all energy has its limitations all of the energy we currently produce and consume has limitations that is oil and gas surely but it is also wind and solar energy and you know and with that i don't just mean in terms of what they can produce and the output and whether it's night or it doesn't there is no wind but i mean a wind turbine has at the state-of-the-art wind turbine at the moment that you would put offshore for example in the sea has about a ton in weight, in terms of weight, a ton of materials that after 20 to 30 years, and this is the lifespan of a wind turbine, have to be recycled. And currently, we actually can't recycle a lot of the things that are used to build a wind turbine. There are a lot of rare earth minerals in there, lots of other things that we don't know what to do with. So you build this turbine and you build thousands of turbines in a wind park. Um, And they have a lifetime of 30 years, and then you need to take it down and build an entirely new one again. And this is this is what I mean. I mean, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't make wind turbines, and we should use them. But we still have to think that it's, it's not just good. Renewables aren't just good, they will also have an impact. But they might just be better than what we've used the last 100 or 150 years. That is that is the difference. Yeah, it's, it's not okay to just say renewables shouldn't be used. It's also not okay that oil and gas, you know, shouldn't, is, is perfectly fine. Um, but we have to find a way to use what we've got at the moment to try and mitigate mitigate climate change as much as possible. And then at the same time, think about adapting to climate change so that these kind of crises can happen, can't happen in the future because, you know, they're terrible and not everyone uh, is in the position to just escape them and you know holiday in the warmth. A lot of people are really suffering and we have to figure out ways that we can avoid that in the future because we know it's going to come. <laughs> this sounds really dark, but if we, if we are aware of it now, perhaps we can deal with it better in, in future cases.
1: And on that hopeful note, I think we're just about done with the news for this episode. Thank you very much for taking us through that, Anna. And now we're going to head into an interview recorded just a little bit earlier with the director of the brand new Center for Energy Ethics at the University of St. Andrews, Dr. Metta Every podcast, we will be joined by a special guest from the world of energy. This week, we're joined by Dr. Meta Hai. Meta began her research career somewhat removed from the world of energy. Both her PhD, based out of the University of Cambridge, and her early career research focused on the relationships between Buddhist monks and the countrywide gold rush in Mongolia. This work investigated the institutionalization of religious practice and self transformational ethics in the context of a booming gold mining industry and drastic political reform. It's quite a mouthful, Meta. <laughs>
0: I have made it easy for you.
1: No! However, in 2013, Meta began a new project centered on the United States, specifically the state of Colorado, working in the field of energy. As part of her broader interest in energy industries, commodity markets and global finance, this research sought to understand how people in the oil and gas industry make financial and ethical valuations of natural resources. Her fieldwork has taken her out on the rigs in Weld County, into the drilling crews field offices and to the executive headquarters in Denver. Out of this initial study, a larger project developed, The Ethics of Oil, Finance Moralities and Environmental Politics in Global Oil Economy, also known as the Energy Ethics Project. Based on multiple ethnographic studies across the world, this five-year research project considers how people in the oil economy make financial and ethical valuations of oil. The ambition of this project is to provide a novel framework for investigating how oil valuations relate to political reforms and new climate economic initiatives. Right now, Meta is in the process of establishing the newly unveiled Center for Energy Ethics at the University of St. Andrews, which she will also direct. Welcome to the podcast, Meta. Thank you for agreeing to be our first guest.
0: Thank you for the invitation.
1: Of course, of course. Now we went through your bio and it strikes me that gold Russian Mongolia is kind of a long way away from the oil fields of Colorado. How did you make that transition?
0: I mean, maybe to make sense of it all, it would help if I mentioned that I grew up with um, my dad being an engineer and my brother was a geophysicist. They both at some points in their career, worked in the oil and gas industry. So I, I grew up with with issues of, of oil and gas. There were, I just remember very clearly a time when I was working for an environmental NGO in Ecuador, and I would come home, and it was like Christmas time. My brother, he had come home from Nigeria, and we would sit there, and my parents were looking forward to some family time, and soon after we were all gathered, my brother and I started a massive discussion about the ethics of oil and gas production. When I was in Ecuador, I saw how the rainforest was being cut down and how the rivers uh, were polluted with, uh, with oil. There was crude oil in the river basins. Fish were dying. Communities were struggling to find food. And so I was really troubled by, by that experience of seeing Oil production up close my brother he was uh, working in Nigeria he would be flown out to the rigs offshore and working for one of the world's biggest companies and he was making a lot of money so that kind of very tense family moment where we were we were debating uh, the way in which our supply of, of oil and gas how it is being produced and the the ethical implications and consequences and for whom these consequences are experienced I think that was actually what was driving my interest in the energy ethics project.
2: I know your brother has since stopped working for the oil and gas industry and I'm wondering if you think there's any chance that career change was inspired by your conversations uh,
0: with your brother on those Christmas Eves. (laughs) Uh, It was not it was a very difficult work environment for him um, he then went to other places to work and eventually ended up in London. So far removed from uh, the sites of, of oil and gas production. He, uh, he experienced the ups and downs of the industry. Um, it's a very cyclical commodity market with, with oil and gas. And so sometimes the oil price is high and other times the oil price is really low. And when it's low, lots of people lose their jobs. And so my brother was one of those who lost his job. He had to retrain um, and hasn't worked in the industry since. I mean, it's hard, right? Because I think if you work in the oil and gas industry, um, of course, it depends on the particular position that you have within the industry. But the paychecks tend to be quite good. And so it's a tough transition. My brother, he went from um, making good money to, to being a trainee primary school teacher in London. His, his wife is an artist, and so um, they were quite dependent on his income. It was a primary source of income for them. I'm sure people would be interested in hearing about uh, how you transitioned from Mongolia to Colorado. When I was working in Mongolia, I was focusing on a gold rush that was taking place at the time. Um, I did my fieldwork in 2005 and 2006, where I, I lived with a local family. I after a year living in the mountains of Mongolia, I had developed close relationships, friendships, ties with local gold miners who then invited me to join them on their mining team. And so I worked in the gold mines for the, for the second year. Eventually, you know, I wrote my PhD, got my first academic job and got my second academic job. And it took me back to Mongolia where I then began to look at the role of Mongolian Buddhism in relation to the gold rush. One of the things I noticed in 2005 and six was the importance of the Mongolian Buddhist monks in the gold mining area. The monks were always there. You'd always see them. Often they would, were doing small rituals. Whenever we would um, initiate a new mining hole, the monks would come, uh, they would do rituals, to ensure that spirits of the ground, uh, spirits of the water would not inflict accidents on us on the mining team. And so the, the, the Buddhist monks were absolutely key to the continuity of the gold rush. With a gold rush where you have thousands of people who are mining for gold, you also then start to see a flourishing of the Buddhist monasteries. More monasteries were being founded. More more people joined the ranks of the the lamas. And so there was what some have described as a revitalization of Mongolian Buddhism. And so I really wanted to study this more. And so when I returned to Mongolia for that project, some of the monks had started to work part-time in the gold mines as miners. Instead of carrying out rituals primarily, they were instead employed by mining companies to mine for gold. And so that got me interested in the relationship between natural resources and cosmology or ethics or morality. What do we think is right and wrong? How do we conceptualize what we think a the good life is? What ideas do we have for the future? Who are included in these imaginaries and who are excluded? What are the consequences and the implications of the imaginaries that we are holding? What kind of projects does it enable us to undertake? In 2011, and I was writing a book about all of this, when I realized the next project I was going to undertake had to be different. I couldn't go back to Mongolia because I had, at that point, my son had, had been born he was a year and a half, and I could see that going back to the gold mines was going to become a challenge at some point. So I needed to, to kind of reorient, but I was still interested in the same questions. And this was a very time when the hydraulic fracturing for especially natural gas in the U.S. was a very political issue. So when I was writing my book on Mongolia, I had a writing fellowship at the most amazing place in Switzerland in the town of Escona on the Lago Maggiore. This is a research center and they invite academics on these kinds of writing fellowships and they also host events. So I was there writing my book and there happened to be an event and I, I went along. I didn't really know anyone. I didn't really know the topic. I just thought this was a great opportunity to, to meet people. and. I happened to to sit next to a Buddhist scholar and I told him about my predicament about my fieldwork in Mongolia, yet having um, a, a son who at the time was a year and a half and not really knowing what I was going to do and where I was going to do fieldwork in the future. And then he said, I know what your next project is going to be. I'd never met the guy before. So I was like, what? Really, like, tell me, what is it? And he said, it's going to be fracking. And honestly, at the time, I had heard of fracking, but I didn't really know what it was. And so um, he got me onto the topic of, of oil and gas production in the U.S. And so that was when I started really conceptualizing the Energy Ethics Project.
1: <laughs> right. So it was kind of like the, the approach that you developed in Mongolia and the questions that developed out of the situation that you had observed when you were there, you were then able to apply to what you'd already been thinking about when you were working in Ecuador.
0: Yeah, that's right. For me, in my head, it makes very, very good sense. It's, it's all like different aspects of the same question, which is a fundamental question about, about value. What do we value? When we think about value as not only a financial value, but also a moral value, an ethical value, then the question becomes quite complicated. The way we value natural resources in a financial sense doesn't always and doesn't necessarily map on unproblematically to our ethical values.
1: What did your field work in uh, Colorado entail?
0: Uh, So it's still still happening. It's ongoing. Uh, I started... My, my research in Colorado in 2013. I can't wait to go back, um, of course, because of COVID and travel restrictions. I haven't been back now for a year. My fieldwork in Colorado is the kind of field work where I spend a lot of time with people who work in the oil and gas industry. Sometimes that means being out on the rigs. This is all onshore oil and gas production. So where I'm spending time out on site, I do interviews, but I also draw on the method of participant observation. So I participate to the extent that the various companies allow me to. And I observe how people are working, how they're interacting. Um, I observe people not only when they're out at work, but also when they're at home. So I stay privately with, with my We call them interlocutors with the people that are research participants. I spend time in, you mentioned Denver, where a lot of the oil and gas companies will have an office. For some companies, they have given me an office within, within the building so that I can take part in the everyday work of the company. That's an incredible opportunity as an anthropologist because they have allowed me to take part in investor meetings, in training sessions, the everyday life that is happening, and they have also allowed me up to the top floors of the of the, of the companies, into the, what we call the C suite, with the, the CEO, you know, the COO, the CFO, the boards of directors, the presidents, and really get a broad understanding of how. An oil and gas company today is operating from field to the very top of executive decision-making.
1: Well, they seem to have been really accommodating. That's amazing. Why do you think that is?
0: Uh, I think a key reason, there are two key reasons. One key reason is access. Like you've, in order to have access, you need to know someone, right? Especially I think with an industry like the oil and gas industry that has become very politicized. You need to know someone who can endorse you and who can introduce you so that you start your research from a notion of of trust, of someone who is there to to listen, uh, to ask questions. But I think in many cases, I have become almost like a, like like a psychologist you don't have to pay for. It's almost like I'm a free therapist um many people in the industry they now know that I I my method is, is non-judgmental. I'm not there to judge them. I'm there to understand them. It's very, very, very important as an anthropologist. And when people they come to know that about you, that they can trust you, they they know that I'm writing about what they tell me. So that trust is A form of trust where they know that if they tell me things about their domestic life, I'm not going to go and tell anyone about it. But they also, at the same time, there is a bit of distance where I'm not part of their network in the same way that their other co-workers are. So there is that little bit of distance where they might share with me experiences or thoughts that they wouldn't share with others. And they, so they know that I write about it. And that process is one that I highlight in my interactions with my interlocutors. I remind them that I write about it because for some people, it can be difficult to remember. I have done this fieldwork now for seven years. So I've become very, very close with a lot of them. So, but as I started out by saying, that access is one that was facilitated by someone I knew. I knew someone in the industry. I asked him if he thought this kind of project might be possible. And he said, of course, I'll introduce you. And so he introduced me to the first person and the next person and the next person. And so that's kind of how I got the access. I would say the second reason why the access has become possible for for my project is because of patience. It's difficult, especially for people who are starting out in their career, to be patient. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm very, very lucky, and I don't take that for granted. To be able to go back to your field site for seven years, is, it is a luxury, and I'm, I'm truly fortunate. By being patient, I've been able to just slowly build up these relations and just slowly get more and more access. I haven't started out by having access like this. I started out by being introduced to a handful of people. And then over the years, it has grown into a big network.
2: I think this is very interesting. And I think it would be also interesting to hear a bit more about your methodology, because I think this very prolonged engagement with the people that you're doing research with is not necessarily the traditional way of doing anthropology. Often anthropologists go to a certain place and immerse themselves for some months or a year, like you did when you were in Mongolia, and then they go back and write up. So from what I know, uh, you usually spend several weeks in your fieldwork site in Colorado and then you return home to Scotland and you do that again several times throughout the year. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about why you've chosen this methodology and how it is working for you. And you know if there was some sort of resistance from funders or or generally colleagues to that slightly different way of doing anthropology.
0: Yeah, it, it it is unusual. As you say, it's much more common to do what I did in Mongolia. You know, you go there and then I stayed there. I, I happened to stay there for two years. Um, and after two years, came back. With Colorado, I'm doing it in a very different way. And it's first and foremost because of my son. I can't pull him out of school for two years. He wouldn't be up for it. <laughs> so I have instead... Prioritized family life, and then thought about a methodology that would that would still work for, for my research. And so, by going back and forth, it works for the family. And then, what's interesting is um, I can now see that it actually works quite well for my field site as well as for the family. My interlocutors are busy. They are they are busy, uh, whether they have shift work or not. Um, They have long working hours. And whether they're working out on the rigs or they're working in uh, the corporate headquarters, their their jobs are stressful. Um, And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the commodity cycles. It really affects the work environment in the industry. And the ones I have now seen when I started my research, the oil price was high. And it reminded me of the gold rush in Mongolia. The companies were just so busy um, trying to secure drilling contracts so they could get a drilling rig, so they could start production, exploration and production. Companies were so busy getting all the legal title work done so that they also could start the process. It was was so, so hectic, so busy. Uh, People were recruited constantly. There was no way I could get an office in one of the companies at that time because there was a shortage. There was no space for people. Then within about two years, the oil price dropped very low and companies were laying off workers. No problem at all for me to get an office because you had whole floors of these buildings that were empty. And when people are working in an environment like this, when the price is dropping, people know that there's a high risk that they might lose their job. And so they have to really work extra hard to prove their worth to their bosses. And when the oil price is high, they are inundated with tasks that they need to do. And so when you come as an anthropologist and you need people to share their time with you, if I had just been there for two years, I honestly don't think that it would have been as easy for people to meet with me. Whereas this way of doing it, whenever I come to Colorado, we're all really excited to see each other and it's possible for them to set aside time. Yeah, it's fantastic that it's worked out on both sides.
1: I would like to, to, to just pick up on, on what you said. You, you were talking about how your interlocutors were excited to see you. Because I was wondering, given what you've said about your time in Ecuador and your discussions with your, with your brother, how hard was it to gain that trust, given that you were coming from without and from academia, which traditionally has been seen to be not necessarily the, the enemy to the oil and gas industry, but certainly uh, kind of contributing to anti-public feelings?
0: How hard it was to gain people's trust?
1: Yeah. How hard was it to gain people's trust and, and what, what different reactions did, did you get initially and how did that change?
0: Oh, Yeah. Um, it's good you, you remind me of this because <laughs> I think I, I tend to forget those very challenging moments. So the first, I would say the first two years of doing the project, they were hard in, in building these relations of trust. So, for example, there was one guy and I, w- I was in the office um, with someone who vouched for me and said, you know, we have, we have done a background check. You can trust her, she's all right. So he called up this uh, mate of his to introduce me to be just on the phone, and the other guy, even though I was being introduced by by his coworker, he was having none of it. He was so so skeptical and and so he said to me, "Is a TV crew with you? are you an, are you an undercover reporter for the New York Times how How do I know that I can trust you?" And I stood there and I was honestly just taken aback by that very sceptical, mistrusting attitude. But I, 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 I should have known better. But anyway, I was surprised. It took me, I think, a year before he was willing to meet with me in person. Um, he was only willing to meet with me in person when I had met with pretty much every, everyone else in his department. And they all returned to him and he said, she's all right. Like you can talk to her. She's okay. After about a year, he agreed to meet with me. And he has since become one of my most generous interlocutors. When we meet now, I tend to ask a few introductory questions and then he talks for hours and we've become really close. And so... I guess it goes back to the, the, the thing I mentioned earlier about patience, to, to be patient with people. In his role, he had dealt with, with activists a fair bit, and I think he had come to, to expect that I was yet another. And so it really took time with him to, to build up that trust that was needed. But I think we have both learned a lot in the process.
2: You just mentioned that you've become very close to this particular interlocutor of yours. And I'm wondering how you manage those relations between you and your interlocutors and the sort of friendships that develop. But still, how do you manage that line between professionalism and friendship since it is such a polarizing topic in today's era? um, And you're working with people who work in the oil and gas industry in a time of great change, of climate change. And I'm wondering if sometimes that can lead to conflict.
0: I, uh, I have a major drawback, maybe, as a field worker, which is, uh, I, I, I'm so honest. I am so, so honest. I have colleagues who like to do field work because it allows them to become a different person. I have never quite understood that. For me, field work, I'm the field worker. I don't put on another persona when I start an interview, and the problem for me, when I am such an honest field worker, is that I might hold personal views that, that clash with, the, with my interlocutors. And if people ask me about my personal views, I, I have a couple of, of ways of responding that can just brush it off. But if people persist and they keep asking, like at some point I'm likely to tell you how I feel. And, uh, and that can be difficult. When Trump got elected, I was in the middle of my fieldwork and I'm no big fan of Trump. So I knew I couldn't really do fieldwork at that time because if my interlocutors were Trump supporters and they were asking me for my endorsement of him, I wouldn't be able to give it. And that could then jeopardize the interview. So what I had to do was I had to take a break from fieldwork. I, I took a break of about seven months where I didn't go to Colorado. I didn't go out on site. I didn't go to the headquarters because I knew if I was asked about politics, it was going to jeopardize my research. I can understand how that
2: was difficult. But um, for my earlier question, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about that balance between the personal and the, and the professional in um, how you deal with the people that you do research amongst?
0: A, l- a lot of the people I, I interview become friends. I don't draw, and that's exactly the same for Mongolia. In Mongolia, I was ritually adopted by a Mongolian family. I referred to my Mongolian father, Mongolian mother. I miss them terribly. And that, that's the nature of my work. My work it's predicated on personal relations, but it also produces personal relations. And that I think is also why I love my, my work. I become close to people. I really want to understand how they conceptualize the world. And in that process, I get to really know them. And I see that as a big gift. So I treasure it and I stay in touch with people. Now in Colorado, that's also why it's hard for me that I haven't been back for a whole year. I'm, I'm really close to, to people I write about. Even if I disagree with them, that's something that's very, I think, very interesting and very important in ethnographic research is this relationship between how do I, as an analyst, perceive the world and how do my interlocutors perceive the world And when I write about, say, oil and gas workers, I don't have to agree. Like, that's not the premise for understanding. It's not to agree. Instead, it is empathy. Empathy is the foundation for ethnographic understanding. So I have to be able to empathize with people. And when you really empathize with people who might view the world in a very different way, it's like an invitation to understand difference, to understand how how do they feel about the world and why do they feel about the world the way they do. With some of them, these kinds of reflections are things I then discuss with them. I have done that both in Colorado and in Mongolia, where I have started in my interviews, in my participant observation, I've started to notice a pattern. And then I start to bring together different patterns that I have observed, and I begin to form the basis for an analysis. I then share my analysis with people, with people in Colorado, with people in Mongolia, and I get their reactions to my initial analysis. It's something we often call a second-order data. That can be so telling, but it also means that I highlight that I'm a researcher. When I go to Colorado, I don't try to not be a researcher. Because because we get so close, seeing people for, for seven years, staying in their houses, um, sharing their offices. We really get to know each other. But I forefront that my position is as a researcher.
2: Something that I'm really interested about is, and I think it touches upon what you've mentioned, that, you know your career decision was also influenced by by your personal life and your son and having to think about where's the best place to conduct field work how do you do it how do you prioritize how do you go about structuring your work and you know having a successful career whilst also having a
0: a private life yeah yeah i don't know if i've figured it out (laughs) Uh, I I think it is extremely difficult. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I think for me, I need time out. That's very, very important for me. So yoga is a, a regular practice of mine. And I need my yoga. I need time where I'm not working. I'm not reading. I am not supervising. I am not teaching. I'm just me. Other things I do, I think, is... I focus my energy a lot. So I feel that all my work efforts are aspects of the same thing. Working on a website might seem very different from putting together a uh, course for teaching. But really, I see it as different opportunities to learn about the same thing. So it, it, it all deepens my knowledge. And it's all driven by curiosity. That's absolutely crucial for me. I tune into my curiosity. I tune into what would I love to know more about? What am I passionate about? What do I really care about? And that is my driving force. My driving force is not one of, oh, I have a gap on my CV. Um, I need to do something about that. Well, you know, maybe, maybe I should. But that's not my priority. My priority really is, I want to know more about this stuff. And whatever it takes to deepen that knowledge, that's what I'm going to do.
2: So is it fair to say then that you've made your passion your job?
0: I don't really think about what I do as my job. So in in the research group, we do writing up seminars where we present and share writing in progress. We do this once every two weeks. For me, that's a highlight of my job. I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm really interested in how we can communicate, how we can really try to understand the world better, because I believe we can. And I believe we can kind of keep pushing our ability to understand, understand each other and understand the world.
2: So how do you envision what you've just talked about with the research group and how you're really interested in learning about what, what others write about and how they conceptualize various things that are related to energy ethics? How do you see this going forward for the newly established Center for Energy Ethics and what kind of collaborations are you looking forward to even outside of anthropology?
0: With the Energy Ethics Project, we are a group now of, a, of 10 people who are working together as a team. Most of us are anthropologists, but not all of us. The Center for Energy Ethics is an opportunity for energy researchers, whatever discipline they, they happen to, to be based in, to come together, to collaborate, to engage in dialogue that goes far beyond the discipline of anthropology. So I see that as the main difference really between the center and, and the project.
1: So I guess where the project allowed different perspectives from within anthropology, the center takes that an extra step and allows for different perspectives regardless of the, the discipline involved.
0: Exactly. At at St. Andrews, we have some incredible expertise in the School of Chemistry, for example. They're doing some incredible work on battery development and alternative fuel cells, in particular with hydrogen. We have some incredible work that is happening in the School of Physics, in the School of Earth Sciences, where we have geoscientists uh, and geochemists who are working on climate change modeling and uh, ice-coring, carbon dioxide dating records and evaluation methods. We have people who are working in economics and finance, on uh, carbon tax predictions and models. We have people who are working in history on legacies of big energy revolutions, like the introduction of steam power. You know, what did that do to different classes? Like in this case, our colleagues are working in in Britain um, and are looking into the socio-political implications of the introduction of steam power. So I could go on and on. We have so many different angles on our energy world today. And the centre is an opportunity for us all to come together and have these discussions and bring our areas of expertise to bear on each other's knowledge production. What's important for me is, I was talking earlier about curiosity. So I want the Center for Energy Ethics to really embrace the spirit of curiosity, of deep interest, where we want want to understand the world better. And how can we best do that? I think we can best do that by working across disciplines. It doesn't mean that we lose our anchoring. I'm an anthropologist. I will always be an anthropologist. I have a skill set that makes me good at certain forms of knowledge production. The same goes for the chemists. They have their skill sets. They have their areas of expertise. But it is when we come together that I think we can really move beyond what we often call silos of knowledge production. Like we can challenge these very distilled or separated forms of knowledge, bring them to bear on each other and, and push, just push our thinking. So we ask new questions. It's important that we challenge ourselves so that we can innovate and think beyond the conventional, think beyond the established, think beyond the traditional. So that's what I what I see the center as being able to do.
2: I think what you said about empathy and understanding and how that's one of the core, not only research methodologies, but I feel that it's also the core of of the kind of projects that you've been leading and and, and the center for energy ethics. So I'm wondering um, sort of on the macro, on the bigger scale, how do you think that A process of empathy and a process of understanding and learning about energy, how can that contribute to the energy future and the climate future? And can it contribute at all or is it not enough?
0: I I think it can, definitely. And I think that's what we need. I'm frustrated by echo chambers. I'm frustrated by us humans, and I'm including myself, in... Um Surrounding ourselves with like-minded people, and then what well, we end up voicing are uh, views that become static, because they're not challenged. Instead, they become reinforced and ingrained and just sedimented. And then eventually, when we come out of our little bubble and we start talking to people who look at the world in a different way, it becomes this clash, it becomes conflict, it becomes black and white. I think this is the dynamic that is preventing us from building a better energy future for all of us. We need to engage. We need to, to reflect and to be willing to have a dialogue. We need to be more open and more patient with each other, whether it's us um, at St. Andrews, where then the Center for Energy Ethics is precisely a device that can encourage us to get out of, our, out of these silos, out of these echo chambers. And that, I think, goes for all of us. But the same, I think, also goes for, for the corporate world. And the same goes for policymakers. The same goes for, for the publics. I really believe that what we need to embrace is a culture of dialogue.
1: Thank you very much for that meta i think that nicely ties everything up there are so many more questions that i have buzzing around my head there are so many more things that i'd love to get you to talk about but let's leave that for um a hypothetical second episode where you come back in the future where we could talk about all the things that the center has gotten up to but thank you very much for joining us today that was a lot of fun
2: well thank you for having me thank you it was very interesting
1: meta if people do want to get in touch with you or do want to learn a bit more about the center where can they go
0: always welcome to email me or go to the energy ethics website www.energyethics.ac.uk
1: all right and of course you can uh, also check out meta on linkedin and twitter so anna how was uh how was interviewing your, your supervisor?
2: Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, I've met, known Meta for so many years now, and there's always new things to learn about a person. And it's fantastic to, to hear her thoughts on her career. And especially for me, you know, I'm, I'm starting out, I'm a PhD student. So it's great to hear about the things that you need to prepare for. I've learned a lot. I'm really grateful to have been able to do this interview with you
1: james well thank you very much for agreeing to be our first ever co-host on all about energy uh we hope uh, we hope you'll join us again in the future
2: thank you i hope so too if you'll have me back i'll be
1: back that's a yes all right we'll get you back get that in the diary <laughs> and anna if the people want to find you and get in touch how can they do that
2: just like with Meta, they can find me on the Energy Ethics website under the researchers' profiles, Anna router.
1: All right. And your email address and everything should be up there. So that's how people can get in contact with you. All right. And I think that just about wraps up our first ever episode. I had fun. hope you had fun. Uh, thank right, you. If you fun. made it this far, let us know. Uh, you can tweet at the Center for Energy Ethics which is at Ethics Energy. Let us know how we did. And if you've got any questions or any guests that you'd like to see on here in the future, any topics you'd like us to cover, then do let us know. But until next time, we'll see you later.
2: Should I shut up? Stop laughing.
1: I'm so (laughs) I need to stop. (laughs) I'm so confused. I'm so confused.